Well, good morning, family. Wow. Let's take a moment, and uh, we want to do take a moment and pray for Kathy and commit our time this morning to the Lord. And um, let's do that right now. Father, we are grateful, grateful for the opportunity to gather together as the family, uh, whether we're here in this room or watching at home or watching downstairs. Uh, we are grateful that we are able to uh, together focus upon you, to honor your name as we worship, together to open your word and study. What a blessing it is that we have your word. You've given to us your word and it is it is trustworthy and dependable. What a blessing that we have it in our own language. We realize that while the majority of, of the majority languages, the biggest languages in our world have it in our languages, there are so many smaller language and people groups that do not have the word yet uh, at least full copies in their own language. So we thank you for uh, for Kathy and for uh, the thousands of men and women who have committed themselves to translating your word into the languages of those who do not have it. And we ask that you would bless them, that you would equip them and, and prosper them in their work. We know your heart for the people of this world, that every tribe, every tongue, uh, every nation would be represented before the throne of God. There's, and uh, so we, we long to see the gospel uh, preached in every people. People come to faith in Christ. People grow in their walk and faith with you. So we pray for Kathy. We, we think as well of uh, John and Hannah on Paradise Island who are at this moment, uh, uh, the work of translation is nearing completion and uh, uh, John is busy with some others recording it orally, so there will be, uh, for those who cannot read, uh, a complete uh, scripture available for folks to listen to. So folks, Father, we, we thank you for, for these things, and we, we ask that you would bless us now as we open your word, that we would not only hear it and understand it, but that we would take it to heart that you would use it to change us and make us more like our Lord Jesus. Thank you again for this time to gather. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are visiting with us this morning, and I know some of you are, or you're, uh, some, I look around and I see a few uh, chapel faces but who are here for the first time uh, in a long time because of COVID. Every week there's more folks in each service that are, that are coming. I'm so glad to see that. But if you haven't been with us over the last number of weeks, we've been going through a study in 1 Samuel, looking at the life of Samuel, who is arguably one of the greatest uh, men to grace the pages of Scripture, one of the most godly men. But today we come to the end of that study. Here in, and I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We come to the end of that series. And here in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we, we come to one of the last scenes in the life of Samuel that's recorded in Scripture. Now after this scene, uh, after chapter 16, Samuel continues to, to live and to serve the Lord probably for another ten years or so. 
He did not die till about 85 to 95 years old. My guess is probably on the latter end of that spectrum. Uh, We don't know exactly, though, uh, how old he was when he died. But this is the next to the last scene in the book of Samuel and the last one that we're going to look at. We've seen that Samuel from his childhood devoted himself to serving God and to serving the people of Israel, and he served faithfully as a priest and as a prophet and as a judge. Verse 1 of chapter 16. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? And again, it was quite a number of weeks ago that we we saw that Samuel, and it was about 25 years time-wise before this, that Samuel was visited by the, the elders, the leaders of Israel, and they basically gave him a pink slip. They fired him. They said, you know, we really don't want you to be judged, to be leader over us anymore. And they demanded a king. And despite Samuel's objections and Samuel's warnings to them, God said, give them a king, and they got King Saul. King Saul became the first king of Israel. So they insisted, God gave them what they wanted. But now, as we saw just last week, God rejected Saul. He rejected Saul as king because Saul had refused to obey God on two different occasions. And it was really reflective of a problem with Saul, and that is that Saul did not have a heart for God. And Saul will continue to be king for about another 15 years or so after this. But he's going to do so under God's judgment and without God's help. Again, uh, from a human perspective, things are going pretty well. The people look and he's been victorious over their enemies. He has, things are going well in the kingdom. The common folks, if they were, if, if they were reading their Twitter feeds and, and watching the media, it would probably all be glowing about how things are going wonderfully. But God has said, no, there's a problem. God has rejected Saul. And Samuel, the Bible tells us, never sees Saul again from when we saw him last until Samuel's death. Samuel never sees Saul again. God has no messages to give to Saul, and Saul has no interest in Samuel or really in God. Amazingly, though, in with all of this scenario that's played out, what we don't see in Samuel right now is any gloating in Saul's demise, nor any pleasure in Saul's judgment or his decline. And I think that what we see here is one of the great testaments to Samuel's character. Because Just the opposite, instead of gloating over, yeah, see, I told you so, Samuel grieves over Saul. 
That's what we just read there in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Samuel, instead of being happy to see this guy fall, Samuel is sad. He's truly sorry to see Saul wandering from God and see Saul failing now as a king. It's significant Info significant enough that the text tells us twice. It tells us here in verse 1, but if we go back to the last verse of the chapter before, just up one verse, you'll notice it says there that, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. It's a big deal. It's a big deal then, and it would be a big deal today. If you think about it, for someone to... Truly be sorrowful and sad over the downfall, the failure of the person that, that took their place, that everybody else rejected you for to vote them in, as it were. That everybody else, you know, when, when they rejected you and said, we don't want you anymore, this is the one they wanted. Have you ever been the rejected person? How hard is it to wish for thee and to hope for thee and to pray for and to work for the success of the person that took your place when you've been rejected? It's remarkable, I think, of Samuel. It says much of his character. Again, rather than being glad, rather than gloating, rather than telling Israel, I told you, You're going to have problems with the king. He's sad. He's depressed. He really, truly cares about Saul. Verse 1, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. And I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel truly is grieving. He is sad. He's depressed. And God comes and speaks to Samuel in his sadness, in his depression. He responds to him. And he says, how long will you grieve? Have any of you all ever grieved over anything? I'm sure you probably have. Most of us over many things, whether it's the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or being rejected or being hurt or some problem or situation in our life. And generally, when we get sad and we get depressed, we sit around and we mope, we worry, we fret, we complain, we feel sorry for ourselves, throw a little pity party. Been there? I've been there. Well, there's a time for sadness and for sorrow and mourning. And often it's quite appropriate. But there also is a time to move on. And basically God comes here to Samuel and says, it's time. It's done. How long are you going to grieve, Samuel? It's time to move on. And he He responds to Samuel in two ways to help him move on and to get past this 
sadness and depression. The first is he calls for Samuel to, to notice and to recognize his sovereignty. That God is sovereign. He's in control. What we see is he says, first of all, I rejected Saul from being king. Samuel, this was my choice. Secondly, he says, Samuel, I have another king ready. God has a plan. He's working his plan. And when you and I find ourselves in times when we are sad and depressed, One of the things we need to remember is whatever our circumstance, whatever our situation, God is in control. Secondly, God says, Samuel, I've got a job for you. Get busy. Part of the therapy, part of the antidote here for sadness and depression is to get busy. To... Stop thinking about yourself to get up, put one foot in front of the other and focus on serving God and doing what he has you to do. Serve God and serve others. It's the same thing, by the way, if you know the story, the same thing that God did with the prophet Elijah. You remember the story of Elijah over in in first Kings chapter 19, where Elijah was on Mount Carmel and had the showdown with the prophets of Baal. You know the story, we won't go there. But if you recall what happened after that, that great victory, as the power of God was displayed, and Baal was shown not to be God at all, you recall what happened. Jezebel uttered some threats against Elijah, and Elijah, after that great victory, fell into a great depression. But do you remember what God did for Elijah? He gave Elijah some time to rest. He gave Elijah refreshment. He took Elijah aside and God showed Elijah his power. His power in the great and mighty and his power in the and working in the still small voice. You recall that? And then God said, Elijah, I've got a job for you to do. Exactly the same thing is here. Remember, God is, is God. God is sovereign. He's in control. Now get busy. I've got work for you to do. May I say that is all still good advice for us today. If we find ourselves sad and depressed, focus on God, who He is. Remember, He is sovereign. He is in control. He is working for our good and for His glory. And get busy serving Him and serving others. Verse 2, And Samuel said, responding to the Lord, How can I go? If Saul hears, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for, for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded, And came to Bethlehem. God told Samuel to go to Bethlehem to Jesse the Bethlehemite. He was going to anoint one of his sons. And Samuel obeys. Again, he may not feel like moving on, but he goes. 
And again, we may not feel like we want to either. If we're stuck in sadness and we're stuck in depression, it's important to do as God says, set aside our feelings here and get busy doing God's work. By the way, God here speaks audibly to Samuel. Many of us say, wow, I'd just love for God to speak to me and like that and talk to me like that all the time. May I say that it was rare then and it's rare now. God rarely speaks to anyone audibly. So don't expect that. God rarely speaks and says, Keith, get up, go. Okay. He never has spoken like that to me. I don't expect Him to. He speaks to me and He speaks to us through His Word, though. If we want to know what it is God wants us to do, don't expect a voice that says, you know, get up and go to Mongolia and there anoint a man to be king. You know, it's not gonna, probably not gonna happen. If it does, go do it. But God speaks here, and what we should do is go do it. He tells us what to do. And what God tells us to do primarily is to be His people in whatever and wherever we are. So as you go to work, serve God at your job. Do your job for Him. If you are a student, you go to school, and you be a student for Jesus. Whether you are a pastor or a missionary like Kathy or a street cleaner or a factory worker, whether you're an executive, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, even if you're retired, your job, what God calls for you to do, is to get up and do whatever you do for God. The Apostle Paul put it like this, writing to the Colossians. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. What he's saying is, whatever it is you do, if it's your menial little job at work, or whether it's the menial chores at home, the daily stuff, if our heart is, if our attitude is, if our mindset is, I'm doing this to honor God, he says it is the Lord Christ that you serve. And it's important to notice, by the way, that he's writing that in Colossians. If you look the verse before, who he writes that to is slaves, people who have no choice over what they do. They just have to do what the master says. And how can a slave do anything that's significant for Christ. Well, he just does what he's supposed to do, but he does it to honor Christ, and it's significant in the kingdom of God. I find those very encouraging words. And God tells Samuel, get up and get moving. Samuel obeys, likewise we should too. Samuel obeys, by the way, even knowing that it could be dangerous. He raised a little objection. Hey, you know, this could be, Saul might kill me. If I go do this, you see, the reality is Samuel understands now Saul has changed. The spirit of God has left Samuel. We saw last time and and uh, what we, what comes up in just a little bit, an evil spirit comes upon him. And Saul is desperately clinging to power now. And he's become a dangerous man. Anyone who he views as a threat to power is not safe. 
And so Samuel realizes that going to anoint someone could be a dangerous job. It's particularly interesting because if we understand a little geography, if we remember back when we, when we first looked at Samuel, we learned where his home was. Samuel lived in a town. His hometown is Ramah. little red dot there in the center. He's supposed to go to Bethlehem, which is down there, down a little bit. And to get from Ramah to Bethlehem, the road takes you right through a town called Gibeon. Gibeah is Saul's hometown. It's where Saul lives. So if prophet Samuel takes a little jaunt down to Bethlehem, he's going to go right through Gibeah, and everybody in Gibeah knows who Samuel is, and word is going to get to Saul that the prophet Samuel is on the move. And Samuel had delivered just not long before this, to Saul, the message, God has rejected you as king. And he's raising up another king. And Samuel rightly knows Saul may hear, and if he does, he'll be suspicious. So God says, no problem. What you do is you go down to Bethlehem, but you go down to offer a sacrifice. Take the sacrifice with you. Take the cow. And there you go, and you get down to there, and you, you offer a sacrifice. And when you do, you invite Jesse and his family there. With the sacrifice, there's usually a meal. You invite them to dinner, and that's what he does. Samuel heads down to, to Bethlehem, and God, in all of this process, intends to teach Samuel a lesson. Samuel's going to learn a lesson. The great and godly man that he is, Samuel still has a lesson to learn. And I realize in that, you know, until you and I get to heaven, no matter how old we are, no matter how long we've been following our Lord Jesus, we are all still works in progress, aren't we? We all still have things to learn, so much to learn. Even Samuel has a lesson to learn. We pick it up and we'll find that lesson here in these next verses. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Samuel arrives in Bethlehem, and I, I find it interesting, if not even a little bit humorous, that Samuel has been concerned about, you know, this could be dangerous. Saul could kill me to do, if I do this. And when Samuel gets to Bethlehem, the people of Bethlehem, the leaders of Bethlehem, are really afraid of Samuel. They're afraid that Samuel could hurt them. Rightly so, I might add. They know the power of God is with Samuel. And Samuel's showing up here unexpected and unannounced. This could be bad news. 
So they say, do you come in peace? They say, yeah, I do. <laughs> okay. What are you here for? I'm going to offer a sacrifice. So they prepare to offer the sacrifice. He invites Jesse and the sons. And as Jesse's family comes in, he starts a procession. They bring, him, bring the sons in. The oldest comes. It's Eliab. Eliab stands before Samuel. And Samuel looks at him and says, Wow! This is the man. Look at him. Tall, rugged, handsome. Surely this is the one God has chosen. But of course, this is where God wants Samuel to learn. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord doesn't see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, God measures people differently than we do. Really, two lessons for Samuel to learn here. This is the first. You'll recall that back 25 years before, when, when Samuel anointed King Saul, when he first met Saul, you recall that Samuel looked at Saul, wow! And the Bible tells us that Saul was the biggest, tallest, most handsome man in all the land. And even Samuel was impressed. And recall when Samuel introduced Saul to the nation, when he pointed out, this is the one God has chosen as your king. He said, look at him. See, there's not another man like him. And everybody goes, oh, yeah. See, the problem is our world and us as well, we always tend to get stuck looking on the outside stuff. It's ingrained in us. But God has to shake Samuel a little bit here and says, don't be impressed with what you see on the outside. Whether it's how good looking they are or whether it's how strong they appear or how big they are or the clothes that they have or the car that they drive or chariot back then or whether it's their bank accounts or whether it's their achievements or their trophies. You know, whatever it is, don't be impressed by any of those things. Their popularity, don't look at those things. That's not how God measures people. God looks at the heart. He looks inside of a person. Verse 9, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, the next oldest son. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And I think Samuel is probably very confused here. God sent me down here to, to anoint one of Jesse's sons. We just went through the whole bunch. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. 
For we will not sit down till he comes here. No lunch until the youngest gets here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. That means probably fair or reddish in appearance. And he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went back home to Ramah. So there's this parade of brothers in front of Samuel looking to anoint one as king, and it's none of those. Finally, we do meet the one who's going to be the next king when they go and they get him out of the field. It's the youngest. The one left out there in the field because he's not even considered important enough to bring to the dinner, to the sacrifice, to be with the family, to be with the prophet. He's just the youngest. Just David. How many of you ever feel like just David? Times we all do. David is probably around 13 to 17 years old right now. But as most of us know the story, David becomes the greatest king of Israel. The greatest in their history. The lesson, not only does God look measure people differently than we do, but also that God often chooses the least likely from our perspective, the least likely from our measure, the least likely from our vantage point, the, the rejected, the youngest, the weakest. Those are the ones that God seems to love if we... Go through the pages of Scripture. He loves to take that one and use that one to do His greatest work. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and what is despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God likes to use the least likely exactly so that God gets the glory, not us. It's good news that God doesn't doesn't measure people the way that this world does. It's good news. Because quite frankly, when we look in the mirror, most of us realize that we are not tall enough. We're not, we're, we're too tall or we're too short or, you know, we're too skinny or we're too fat or we're not good looking enough. We're not smart enough. We're not accomplished enough. We, we're not rich enough. We're not whatever enough to make the grade by what the world says. Wow. You're, you're great. You're a success. Most of us say no. But God likes to choose the least likely. 
It's good news in that because we look around the room and we say, there's a lot of potential for greatness here. (laughs) That's what Paul said. God measures us not by the externals, but He measures us by our hearts. And when we let that soak in for a minute, we realize, wait a minute, that might not be a good thing. I know on the external measurements, whether you go by stature or by accomplishments and achievements and brilliance of of personality or brilliance of intellect, I realize I don't measure up to anything great. But when you look at the inside, how many of you think it gets worse? This might not be a good thing that God measures by the inside, by the heart. Because truthfully, when I read that God says that David, the Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart. If I were to say my heart is more, is my heart more like David? or more like Saul, I fear that so often my heart is more like Saul's. Unfaithful, disobedient. A heart that is moving away from God rather than toward God. So I'm not sure if this is good news. That God doesn't measure by the way that that we do. He measures by the heart. But the reality is, it should be an encouraging word. It should be an encouraging truth. Because here's the good news. You see, while, while most of us can't do anything to change the externals, we can't make ourselves shorter or taller. We, we try to make ourselves thinner, many of us, and we don't do very well at that. We, we, we can't make ourselves smarter. We can't make ourselves, you know, whatever... We can't change most of these other things. But the reality is, any of us can cultivate a godly heart. It's what we all can do and it's what we all ought to be doing. But it makes me wonder, if God says that David is a man after God's own heart, What does a person after God's own heart look like? What does a person with a godly heart look like? And I think that's a great question to ask. Because if I want to cultivate a godly heart, I need to know what the target is. What am I aiming for? And so as I wrap up this morning, I want to just quickly suggest Seven things, seven qualities or characteristics of a godly heart. Fortunately, we have for us here an example, which is why God has put David here. The man after God's own heart is here for us as an example. And on the pages of Scripture, we have his life lived out. We also have his his insides, his thinking, his his feelings are all poured out in, in the pages of Scripture as well. Because David, the master poet and songwriter, has written 
all of his, he's just laid it out there bare for us to see his hurts, his flaws, his fears. So what is it, just quickly as I just run through a few of my thoughts, and you may have more, as we look at David, what is it that makes a godly heart? First, I notice that David desired to know God. We see it in many places, and I'll just give uh, just one sample from Psalm 63, verse 1. David says, Oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry land, a dry and weary land where there is no water. David wanted to know God. He made it a driving Desire in his life to get to know God. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. Oh, that I may know Him. This one thing I do, you know, he wants to know Christ. If we want to have a godly heart, we need to make it a priority to get to know God. One of the best ways we do that is through God's Word. And David had a love for God's Word. He studied it. He meditated on it. Meditated on it means he thought about it. He memorized it. He writes in Psalm 119, 97, Oh, how I love your law, your Word. It is my meditation all the day. He made learning God's Word a priority. If we want to have a godly heart, we need to make learning God's Word and not just learning it, but thinking on it a priority. Thirdly, I noticed that David not only wanted to know God's Word, he desired and he strove, he longed to put it into practice, to obey God, to keep God's commandments, to keep God's Word. He says in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I want to know you, so I, get, so I, I dig into your word. I love your word, but it's not enough just to know it. I memorize it so that I put it into practice so that I won't sin. Fourthly, David had a resolute faith in God. In other words, he believed God. He, whatever God said, he believed. When God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, he believes that. So David says, I will both lay me down and sleep. I'll rest because you are with me. You're around me. When God says that He is good, David believes Him. When God says that He is compassionate, David believes Him. When God says He is merciful and gracious, David believes Him. He takes Him at His word. We see it most marvelously illustrated in the one story that most everybody knows of King David's life. When David faced Goliath. David is that young guy probably around 15 years old or so, is, is aghast when he sees this giant taunting the armies of Israel and taunting Israel's God. And David can't believe, why is nobody standing up to him? God says he'll be with us. <laughs> and he goes to the king and says, I'll go fight. And the king says, well, Okay, nobody else is, you know. Here, wear my armor, you know, I'm just like way too big. He's swallowed up in this stuff. And he, 
And David goes out before Goliath, you recall, just in his normal shepherd gear with his staff, his stick, and his sling and some rocks. And Goliath taunts David. He's, what is this? You come at me with a kid? You send a kid out here with stick, sticks and stones? Come on! And he curses and what were David's words? David said, Goliath, I'm going to get you because I'm... T-. No, he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. The Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. It's not about me. It's about God. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David believed when God said, I'll be with you. When you trust in me and you go out in my name, I will give you the victory. David's like, okay. That kind of faith. That's a heart, a godly heart, believes God. Fifthly, David never sought to honor himself. He aimed, he sought to honor God. Read the Psalms. They're full of praise to God. They're full of thanks to God. We see His humility on display in 2 Samuel chapter 7. After David has been king and David desires to, to build the temple, a place to house the ark and a place to worship God, he desires to build the temple and God says, no, I'm going to have your son do that. But God says, David, I'm going to do something else for you. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you one. I'm going to build your house. Your kingdom is going to endure forever. And David says, wow, thanks, God. I've been working hard. I've, I deserve that. I earned that. No. King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you've brought me thus far? God, who am I that you've even brought me to where I am? The fact that you're talking about this other is even more astounding. David wasn't about honor for him. He was about honor for God. Sixthly, David truly worshipped God. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 1 calls David the sweet psalmist of Israel because he wrote, it, he wrote psalms, hymns of praise to God. Over half of the psalms in the book of Psalms are attributed to David. In those psalms, David expressed such deep insights and such intimacy with God. And even today, we still sing these psalms. We still search these psalms for for words and and ideas and concepts of how we can offer to God the praise that is due to His name. We're still mining the depths of David's wisdom and his the depth of his worship. But more than these songs and psalms that David wrote, David understood that worship is not about songs. 
It's more than, it's not about songs, and it's not about ritual, it's not about sacrifices and going to church and, and saying prayers and doing certain things. It's not about religion. Worship, true worship of God is about the heart. Incidentally, a thousand years later, Jesus said, true worshipers, John chapter 4. It's not about going to this mountain or that mountain. It's not about where we worship or how we worship in these forms and rituals. He says, true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. David understood that. He wrote in Psalm 51, verse 16, For you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And we look at that list and we say, wow, you know, I, I fall short of that list. I, I'm not all those things. Do I, do I really desire to know God? Do I love God's Word? Do I, do I long to obey God's Word? Do I have a resolute, determined faith in God? Do I believe Him in anything He says? Do I seek to honor God, not myself? True worshiper of God. Wow, do I do all of those things consistently? I fall short of that. But it's worse than that. It's because not only do I not do all those things, if you could see the sin in my heart, how many times I have blown it, continue to blow it, there's no way I measure up. See, that's why I say it's a scary thing when we say God judges. He measures us by our heart. Do you ever feel that way? I fall short of that list. And, and I, I, in the negative column over here, here's, all, here's where I failed. And matter of fact, I have failed so badly. There's no way I could ever be a man, a woman after God's own heart. I bet you feel like that sometimes, don't you? But that's why God in His grace has put David here as an example. Because if you know David's story, not only is David called a man after God's own heart, but what we discover is David has sinned big. He has failed huge. Publicly, awfully, he sinned. Most not notoriously was he committed adultery and there was with Bathsheba and there was a the murderous attempt to cover it up. How could a man who did that ever be called a man after God's own heart? And the answer is, first of all, it's the grace of God. And is David's response to his sin. The seventh characteristic I see of a godly heart is how it responds to sin. David owned his sin. He owned up to it when confronted and he repented of it. Every time you see in the Scripture, you see David's sin, you also see him when he becomes aware of it and conf or confronted by it. Unlike Saul, you recall last week, who blames everybody else, David says, yep, I did it. I did. 
When the prophet Nathan went to David and in front of him, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then David went before God and that his his prayer before God is recorded in Psalm 51 and it's worth a whole study of its own. But he says to God, against you and you, own, you alone I have sinned. Done what is evil in your sight. So you're justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I said, God, wash me from my sin. Purge me from my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. He says, God, please forgive me. But more than that, God, change me. I don't want to go that way. See, brothers and sisters, there's hope for you and me. Can you be a person after God's own heart? Well, if you're a sinner like David, yeah, you can. But you come to God and you say, Here I am. I did this. God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And God, let's get to work changing. And here's the pattern. Characteristics of a godly heart. Let's pray. Father, this is intensely practical. This is where we live. We are people who fail. We are people who don't measure up by the world's standards. We're people who don't measure up to your standards, but by your grace, first you sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of our sin. So we can come into relationship with you simply by trusting in him. And then, Father, we we know that try as hard as we might to live godly, we continue to fail even like David, sometimes we fail big. But we can do like David and come back and throw ourselves upon Your mercy and grace, confess, and You call for us to pick ourselves up and to get busy, start following You. And little by little, You change us and reshape us and make us more like Jesus. Lord, we desire, we want to be men and women who have a heart, a godly heart, to be people after Your own heart. So God, would You do that in us? May even this moment, that be the prayer of each and every person here in this room, watching at home or watching downstairs. Lord, give me a godly heart. May it be our prayer. Lord, I commit this moment to follow You, to learn Your Word, to grow, to love You. Lord, I need Your help. So we pray this, Father, for Your glory, for Your honor, and for our good. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.